Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Rob. And this is Two Librarians Walking to a Shelf. And this is our quarantine edition. Uh, Michelle, do you want to tell everybody what that means? Sure, Rob. (laughs) Last week... Uh, There was a positive COVID case in the library and out of an abundance of caution for the employees and the community, the library sent everyone home to get COVID tested to make sure the branch had been like sprayed down with disinfectant and everything sat for a a sufficient amount of time. So if there were any germs on anything, they could live out their lifespan and go away. And we've been home. So it happened to be over a break for the library. We were closed for two days for the Thanksgiving holiday anyway, but we just continued to stay closed for a little while longer so that everybody could get their COVID test. So Rob, how was your COVID test? Uh, I'll tell you this, kudos to the urgent care people because they put up with a lot of shenanigans from me because I had heard about how horrible this test was and there was nothing to it. Like when you tell me you're going to stick like a chimney cleaner up my nose and tickle my brain. All I can think about is that scene in the Arnold Schwarzenegger total recall where he has to pull the tracker out of his, out through his nose. It wasn't anything like that. I'll be honest with you. It was quick. (laughs) It was easy. Uh, The ladies I dealt with were wonderful, but the lady who administered the test, she could tell I was nervous and just kind of ran with it and kind of made it funny. Then the other lady that came out with the results, she was really cool. She told me, you're negative, you know, which I've heard all my life. And I'm like, that's not helping me. I already knew I was negative. And she's like, no, you're negative. And I said, thanks, you know, dad, for that. Uh, I (laughs) need to know if I have COVID. And she said, you don't. And I said, are you positive? And she said, no, I'm negative. I'm like, I don't need this in my life right now. She's like, sir, stop, stop it. (laughs) She was not having your shenanigans. It's snowing. You know, it was weird. It was a weird day. It was November 30th. It's snowing. She's standing out in the snow, having this weird Abbott and Costello thing with me. Uh, finally, it got through my lead thick head that negative was a good thing in this case. Not like I've been being told I was negative all my life. So anyway, uh, yeah, so it wasn't that bad at all. And I would encourage everybody to just kind of. If you have to go get the test, just go get the test. These guys are doing a great job, and uh, I'm sure you had the similar experience. Yeah, it was a drive-up place where everybody's just in their car, and the, the nurses and the staff are outside, and they come to your car window, and they take your temperature, and they ask you questions, and then they stick their stick up your nose, and then you get a text message later with your with your results. So before we went, before we left Wednesday, we did shut down less than two hours before our regular time. It was sort of like dropping out of high school the week you would graduate. <laughs> we both took home a bunch of new materials to read while we were quarantined. What did you take home? What was your first pick that you took home? What did you read? Uh, I grabbed a mystery by Denise Mina. It's called The Less Dead. And so the title, The Less Dead, there's a time period when police officers referred to dead prostitutes or sex workers as the less dead because they didn't count them as real people. So yeah. So the title's kind of gross, but the book is about Margot. She's a 30 something medical professional and she's facing burnout in her personal life, burnout in her professional life. And then her mom dies. 
And this kind of kicks off a discovery journey for her and that she's adopted. And now that her mom has passed away, she can go find her birth parents or birth mother. So she goes on this adventure. The book takes place in Glasgow and in searching for her birth mother, she discovers that her birth mother was murdered years ago and the case is never solved. So it's a crime mystery. It's been described as crime noir. So it's pretty dark and bleak. And the backdrop of Glasgow fits that, I think, because it's kind of moody and gross and whatever. So she goes on this journey to find her birth mother and solve the mystery of the murders. So I picked up this book because the author, Denise Mina, last year she published a book called Conviction. And it's about a murder that is solved by a community of like true crime podcast fans. Okay. And it's also pretty dark and bleak. Like it's not a... It's not a cozy mystery. It's crime fiction and noir is a good description. And that book was picked up by Reese Witherspoon's book club, the Hello Sunshine book club. Oh, wow. So it got a lot of press, a lot of publicity, and it was really good. And this one was pretty good, too. I liked Conviction better, but The Less Dead was pretty good. Cool. Yeah. So what what did you read? So I took a couple books home that I'm probably going to get back to later. One was well, Tremley's song and... I was surprised that we had this. Uh, our friend Gray Hendricks had mentioned Paul Tremblay, and this is the book that he mentioned. I didn't realize that we had it because it's always been checked out. And I started, I started getting into this, and it's about kind of a pandemic with rabies kind of thing. And so I just, I think that later on I'll be more interested to read this. I don't know that I necessarily want to read a pandemic kind of novel during a pandemic while in quarantine. So, like, you know, our, our rule is comfort. This is not bringing me any comfort. <laughs> this, this seems like this is going to be pretty intense and scary. So, Paul yeah. Trent, Survivor Song, if, if you think you want to read it, uh, maybe the atmosphere of the world right now, maybe it's perfect to get you into this scare. It's, it's not my thing right now, so I'm going to come back to that later, maybe when things are a little less weird. And then I took a nonfiction book home called Tombstone, The Earp Brothers, Doc Holliday, and The Vendetta Ride from Hell by Tom Clavin. We actually have two copies of this. This seemed real cool, but I'm finding that for nonfiction Westerns, I would rather read a Western novel or watch a Western than actually learn real Western history. I know that sounds lazy. Rob. (laughs) I know. I I want my Westerns to entertain me, not teach me. So I'm going to come back to this because the write-up is great. I just couldn't get into it, but we do have a couple copies. So if you're interested in real Western history, this new one, Tombstone, might be your cup of tea. What else did you get? Took home a nonfiction called Evil Geniuses. It's by Kurt Anderson. And I grabbed this one because I guess in 2017, he published one called Fantasyland. And they're both nonfiction. So Fantasyland and its subtitle is How America Went Haywire, A 500-Year History. (laughs) That one, Fantasyland, is a well-researched piece of nonfiction, but it's not necessarily academic. It's written kind of tongue-in-cheek. It's clear that he is so baffled by some of the stuff that he was researching, but it was also heavily footnoted with lots and lots of sources in the back. So it was a well-researched piece, but it wasn't boring. Okay. And that one, I read that one when it was new. And that one, it basically is like a fun and interesting way to look at the way America approaches reality from its inception to modern times. And a quote from the book description 
says it better than I could. America was founded by wishful dreamers, magical thinkers, and true believers by hucksters and their suckers. Fantasy is deeply embedded in our DNA. So it's a sweeping social history of different religions, uh, religious beliefs, pop culture movements, conspiracies that have moved through the fabric of America since its beginning. Uh, It starts with the Puritans and the Salem witch trials, and then it kind of moves through the satanic panic of the 80s. Right. Uh, and conspiracy theories kind of now, and it's a big book, but it's readable and it was fun for me to read at least, but his newest evil geniuses, evil geniuses, the unmaking of America. It's similar in scope as a, in that it's taking a wide breadth of American history to make a point, mm-hmm. but it's a more pointed argument instead of being a social commentary book. This is an economic policy book. So it was not nearly as fun to read. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But in Evil Geniuses, Anderson discusses how politics in the last 50 years has created a system in which big businesses call all the shots for politicians and it has completely undermined the working class. So this is clearly from a point of view, Anderson's point of view, and it may not be everyone's economic point of view, but it's very well researched. It's full of footnotes. It's full of source material. So he's not just making a blanket statement without anything to back it up. Okay. So there's a lot to digest in the book, but I learned a lot. Uh, He argues for some solutions at the end of the book, his main solution to like the wealth disparity and the decimation of the middle class in America is uh, Americans need to stop with binary thinking. So we need to stop believing that all regulation is bad. So deregulate everything. And also on the other side, we need to stop believing that a policy that like a more socialist country is successfully practicing isn't necessarily going to work here either. So like we've got people that are like socialism is evil. Socialism is great. And we've got people who are like deregulation is great and deregulation is bad. Um, And there's no middle ground. So his argument is if we can just find the middle ground again, like we had prior to maybe 1980s politics. Uh, we can recreate a system of, you know, like a robust middle class in the United States. So it wasn't a fun book to read at all. (laughs) And I didn't read everything word for word. I kind of flipped through to interesting parts, but it was, it was interesting. Okay. Well, the one book that I did get into was the lady from the black lagoon, Hollywood monsters and the lost legacy of Millicent Patrick. Do you know who Millicent Patrick was? Only because you told me. She designed the creature from the Black Lagoon. And I just find that fascinating because I'd never heard of her before. And and I'm not real heavy into the history of the Universal Monster movies, but I was shocked that more hasn't been uh, written about her. This is a book by Mallory O'Mara. It's a biography uh, of Millicent Patrick. And quite honestly, it's a shock. I mean, there's so much... I don't know what it is about history, but history is very selective on who's remembered and who's not. I don't understand that because she made such a huge contribution to monster cinema. If, okay, if, so what what era, when did this movie come out? It was in the 30s, right? No, no. Creature from Black Lagoon, I believe, was the early 50s. Okay. She, she did more than that, and I'm just getting into the meat of her, her amazing career. But how is it that it's 2020 and I'm just... I mean, maybe I'm lazy on my part because I never delved into it, but I would have thought that at this point I would have heard about her. I would have heard that she was the person who designed, because there's all these pictures of uh, of the makeup guy putting makeup on Boris Karloff, turning him into 
Frankenstein, you know, but there's, I've not seen any pictures of her drawing and designing creatures from the Black Lagoon. So it's really, that respect is mind blowing. So I guess I'm not surprised. I know. But I'm glad there's books now. There's books now and we can all kind of catch up on history. It is kind of weird though. Like, and it's, and I know that you're looking at it. You're not surprised because it, it was a woman and, and you don't think of women, you don't think of women as being filmmakers in that kind of genre or, or that kind of, you know, designing monsters, which is silly. I've met so many female artists in my life that do some amazing monster art. My wife does amazing monster art. I think that, it's silly, but it's a shame that because, you know, maybe at some point somebody didn't think that adolescent boys buying Famous Monsters magazine would want to read about a woman who designed the creature from the Black Lagoon. And I don't know why that was, if that's how that happened, I don't know why that decision was ever made. But uh, I am happy to finally be catching up with this. We actually have a couple copies in the system. So if anybody's looking to learn a little bit more history on their monster movies, uh, this is probably a good book to uh, pick up and check out. Uh, okay, and then I think we both took a movie home. What did you watch? Uh, I watched My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Ah. Yeah, it's uh, an oldie but a goodie. It's funny. I can remember sitting on my dorm room bed with my little Dell computer on my desk next to me and having like four DVDs, and that was one of them. Okay. <laughs> so I've watched that movie a bunch. It's definitely a comfort watch for me. I think, honestly, I think it holds up pretty well. Like there's nothing cringy or anything about it, I don't think. Right. But yeah, well, I was, I confined myself out of an abundance of caution to my bedroom while my husband and child ran amok throughout the rest of the house. Ooh. So I had a lot of time to just do whatever. And I found that I, that movie was a, a nice little piece of comfort. Did you watch it before you got tested? After you got tested? Was it fresh? Was it when did you watch it? I'm just curious. Uh, bef- before I got tested. Before you got so that was the weirdest part for me until I got tested yesterday and everything was fine. Even though like never thought once that I was sick, there was still that little part of me that was like, oh man. And I'm sitting back in the guest bedroom. Yeah. I've made a tent myself because I'm trying to make it the best, you know, that I can make it. <laughs> um, yep. Got my tent. I got my bag of pretzels and it was just. It was just kind of weird, but it is nice to put a movie in that you know well, and you know that it's going to entertain you, and that probably took a little bit of the scary off, or a little bit of the weirdness off. Yeah, it did. It it took the edge off, because it's, you know, that little piece of familiar comfort. Yeah, should have taken a Matthew McConaughey, Kate Hudson home, though. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> I did not watch a comfort watch. I took something new home to give it a watch because I've heard so much about it and it's the invisible man. This is a horror movie that came out earlier this year. I kind of just missed it when it came out. And it wasn't until I heard some of the people on staff that went and saw it, talk about it, that it was completely different than what I thought it was. It originally was supposed to be part of this new universal monster movie that started with the Tom Cruise mummy movie that failed. Oh Yeah. Yeah, so this Invisible Man was supposed to be like this $250 million Johnny Depp action, monster, silliness, whatever. So they they killed that idea, and then they, the guys at Blumhouse gave it a $7 million budget, something like that. So you have to be creative, so it's not all about special effects. And this turned out to be a really good movie. I think it's a little rough, maybe for your taste, but this is 
this is where a horror movie tells a bigger story. This is sort of like, it, it kind of reminded me of Get Out. So we have a character who's trying to get away from her abusive husband, and he's this brilliant scientist, and he has created this suit that renders him invisible. So when she runs away from him, he's still stalking her, and he's creating mayhem in her life, R-rated mayhem in her life, and everybody, and she keeps telling everybody it's him that's doing it, but he's invisible, so no one sees it, so no one listens to her. So they're kind of like, "Oh, okay, right, yeah, he he died." You know, supposedly he faked his death. He died, but you're saying that he's actually there and he's invisible. Sure, he is, and and that's kind of patronizing attitude that most of the characters take with her, even though she knows for sure that he's still there. He's doing these horrible things, but she can't get anybody. To believe her. So you see where the, the bigger, yeah, where they're approaching spousal abuse. Yeah. The commentary. Yeah. And it wasn't heavy handed because it's a, it's a straight horror action movie, but I can tell you, I watched it with Sherry and uh, Sherry, my wife, and she felt like it was a real horror movie. Like it was really about something and it didn't have fake scares. It didn't have any of that stuff. It had real characters with a fantastic aspect of the invisible suit, but they had real characters reacting to a real situation in a real life manner. And as an audience member, you're watching and you know, she's telling the truth, but no one believes her. And then you start wondering, Oh man, how many times has somebody said something to me and it just seemed outrageous and I didn't believe them. So it, it definitely makes you think about some stuff that you probably don't even want to think about. And that right there makes it kind of something special, something bigger, something out of the ordinary. So yeah, it's Invisible Man, uh, Elizabeth Moss. I'm not familiar with her. Uh, the director was Lee Wanell, and he wrote the original Saw movie and uh, did some insidious movies. If you're looking for a really good, really scary, and it's scary because like it deals with something that's real, and it deal it's yeah. something real that no one wants to deal with, you know. But it's done in a fantastic manner, and you're just rooting for her. You're wondering when people are going to wake up and listen to her. If you want to watch something like that, I can't recommend Invisible Man highly enough. Again, it's really violent. I don't know that you would like it, but I think that you would like the bigger story that it tells. Yeah. Is it? So you said it's a Blumhouse? Yeah. Yeah. So are you a fan of the new Blumhouse movies? I am more or less. Um, They're hit or miss, but they make so many of them. That's cool. So I'm that kind of guy that I'm not going to get upset over the ones that I don't like. Okay. I'm not going to get too crazy about the ones I do like. I'm just going to continue to watch them because over the long haul, I'm watching enough movies that I really like from them. And so even if one comes up a little short, I can still find something in it. They did one, the remake of Black Christmas, which I really didn't care for. But there are some moments in that movie that I really, really like. Okay. Uh, Not enough for me to ever tell anybody to watch it. But, you know, if you want to watch it, don't expect a remake of the classic, but there are some, some singular moments in that movie. And I find that to be true with most of the movies. I really like this one. I like get out. So yeah. And then they have a whole series on Hulu that Blumhouse uh, made, especially for Hulu. And they're all holiday horror movies. Oh yeah. Uh, They have a Thanksgiving one that I haven't watched yet called Pilgrims, a horror movie. And then they've got a couple Christmas ones and Halloween ones. So, if you're into those movies, if you're into the Blumhouse, uh, you like what they're doing because they do these incredible movies on small budgets. Yeah, I just I pulled up the some information on Freaky. 
So the one with Vince Vaughn that's about to come out because that one actually has my interest. Okay. Because it, it feels like a nineties, like scary movie. And it feels like more of a comedy than just straight up scary, at least right. from the, the previews. And I'm into that. Yeah. I think that one would, is going to be pretty good. I've not caught up with that one yet, but that's like, I think the big movie that's been out for a couple of weeks now. So. Yeah, it's been out for a couple of weeks and it says that it'll be on demand on December 4th. So if anybody wanted to stream it, it'd probably be a, a rental or a buy, not not a free on Amazon or anything. But right. um it says, let's see, it was its budget was six million. Six million is not a lot of money to make a movie. So that kind of Yeah. It's kind of putting the filmmaker in a position to tell a story. Like six million is not I mean, that's not even the budget for special effects for a Marvel movie. You know, right. that's barely catering for a Marvel movie, I would imagine. <laughs> Probably. So I think that's what makes the Blumhouse movies a little different. And that would be, they have to be creative. They have to tell a story. So yeah. to get to a special effect, your viewers have to already be engaged in the characters. And that certainly was the case for The Invisible Man. Okay. So. And it says it also says that it's already made five... at the box office. And that's pretty good considering the box office is pretty much non-existent. So that's, yeah, that's really coming from drive-in because it is playing the drive-in here out at the um, theater that made the drive-in in the parking lot. So I think that's, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty cool. And um, his movies certainly can play and make a little money and then go online for streaming and uh, everybody see them. So, yeah, he's doing something right. Jason Blum and his uh, production company. Yeah. I have a feeling that his will um, fare, fare better than some of the others after 2020. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, and then if you remember, like, in back in March when everything did shut down, Trolls made a huge amount of money in the first, like, week because everybody was like, well, we don't have anything else to do, so let's just pay for a movie. Right. And that kind of, from what I can tell and from what I've read, it's shaken up a lot of how people feel about movie releases and box offices and if they're actually as important as people believe they are. So I'm wondering if that'll democratize media a little more. I think it's going to have to evolve in a way that it's never had to evolve before. I mean, there was always that there's always something that comes along like movies kind of fought TV when TV first came around, but they kind of figured out a way to, to live together and then movies and TV kind of fought home video when it came along and they figured out a way to live together. And then streaming came along, but this is a little bit bigger than that. I always will prefer to watch a movie in a theater than at home for the first time, but I don't know that that's going to be an option, except this year for me at least has been great because all the movies I've seen in the theater have been at the drive-in theater and I can't, man, what better, you know, there's nothing like watching a movie at the drive-in. That may be a nostalgia thing. I don't know. There's something very cool to be outside with the windows down. And now the, a lot of the movies that we went to see were the older movies, particularly Christine. That was really cool seeing it at the, the drive-in, man. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, man. I mean, there's just some movies that just I think were made to be seen on the drive-in screen. But eh, there's probably some nostalgia there, too. There's a whole lot of things are going to get weird, like weirder, like the new normal stuff in 2021 is going to be different than what we're used to. So yeah. we'll just see how it happens, but I think we'll do it. We've met every challenge so far, right? 
so far. We we dealt with the murder hornet. <laughs> uh, we we dealt with being told aliens are real. Now now we have a weird obelisk. We've gone up against every challenge and have kind of just looked that challenge in the eye and went, meh. <laughs> <laughs> That's the American way. Right. Right. So however wherever we're headed, uh, I think we're up for the challenge in some way. We'll see. The library will be here changing and making sure that there's books and movies for a little bit longer. Well, we'll be back at work together soon. The library will be doing curbside only uh, for a little while and then open to the public as soon as we can. When you hear this podcast, hopefully by then we'll be open. Hope so. So it's been fun doing a podcast during quarantine. Quarantine podcast. Anything goes. What happens in quarantine stays. I don't think that's real. I better not say that. No, I don't think that's true. But I will say, no matter what they tell you, no matter what you hear, always remember, don't don't trust trust robots. robots. The views expressed by the hosts are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the Huntsville-Madison County Library System. For more information on the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library, visit us online at hmcpl.org. If you'd like to learn more about some of the topics discussed today, visit your local library, which is us. No representation is made that your librarian is more knowledgeable than other librarians or that they have any expertise on your particular project.